Will you all pray with me? Well, God, we ask, Lord, as we come before your word this morning, that you would speak to us. That you would help us to overcome all these years of separation from this context in the Bible that is so far from what we experience here in Edmonton. And Lord, because your spirit is alive, we ask that you would speak through the reflections in our minds and the moving of our hearts this morning, that we would actually sense you guiding us to understand how this is all good news for us today. We ask that we would experience your love in this room and at home because you are a God who is calling us again and again to choose you, to follow after you, to serve you. Help us, Lord, to discern this this morning together as a church. We ask this in your name. Amen. This has been part of a series called People of Promise. Because as I read the book of Joshua and preparing for this, it was so clear to me that this is a people coming out of a wilderness season who God's calling them into impossible tasks, into impossible situations. He says to them, cling to my promises. I will fulfill everything I told you I would fulfill. And that also connects for me in some way this morning to this Netflix show that I've been watching where it's also called The Movies That Shape Us. Has anyone heard of this series? It's a documentary series on Netflix. And the reason I want to share it is because I am fascinated by how movies are made. And the premise of the movie is this idea that there's these classic movies that have shaped all of Hollywood but they almost didn't happen, or they almost were very different. And they highlight big movies like Jurassic Park or Forrest Gump. And the one that I was just shocked about was Home Alone. Because they want to tell you, if you read, watched any of these kind of things, what almost happened. And there's always this like squabble back between the studio of like, oh no, this, this is too much money, we can't do it. Because they don't know how much money that the actual uh, movie is going to make. And then you look at the amount of money something a movie like Forrest Gump earns, and you think, well, it doesn't matter how much you spent on it, just, just spend the money. But Home Alone, they almost didn't have one of my favorite characters in Home Alone, which is Marv. They have the two robbers in Home Alone. There's a guy named Harry and a guy named Marv. Marv's the real crazy guy with the Einstein hair. I love Marv. Marv almost wasn't in Home Alone. I can't imagine Home Alone without Marv. I can't. But I also don't think God wants us to understand his invitation to Scripture apart from the stories we hear in Joshua. That it's so much a part of this big story of God's love that if we miss all these different hints along the way, especially in the Old Testament, which for a lot of us, honestly, is harder to read and understand in a deep, profound way. Like, just like I feel about Marv is how I think we should also think about all the books of the Bible, including Joshua. And we're at the end. And so I want us to look at some of the final things in the book. And like I did last week, I'm going to focus on two sections. Two sections which actually focus on two altars. And there's also a third altar I'll talk about. And these altars all are about witness. What they bear witness about to the people and what they say about God. And, you know, just like Israel is going to find themselves at the end of this book of Joshua where they finally receive this land, how they understand these questions of what God has done is, is going to be very important for the future. Just like it's really important for you and I, how we understand God's grace in our lives and how we move forward in life, it's really important we understand what God is doing because what God asks is, yes, obedience. 
He asked us to be faithful to him because he has poured out his love upon us. He has been faithful to us. This is the flow that the people we read about here must see and know. And we need to see it too. It helps us to anticipate and receive Jesus when he comes. So the first altar, are you with me? I want to just make sure. I like making eye contact. We're with me. The first altar is in the section that that Caleb read for us in the beginning and throughout chapter 22. In this altar, I would like to explain as this is an altar of witness between us. This is an altar of witness between us. The first, chapter 22 starts with this incredible commendation from Joshua, who is, he's talking to the specific few tribes. It's the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe Manasseh. The the, The tribe of Manasseh is split across the Jordan River. But they have this land guaranteed for them across the Jordan River. And I actually have maps today to help see this because maps help. If you're a visual, maps help. So if we go to the first map, here we are. We have the wonderful land of Canaan. Well, at least not all all of it. I've zoomed in a little bit. And you you can see, um, if we could get that little bit of a line in the next image, hopefully... Uh, there we go. We got a line. That's right. If, it's really small. So this is the, the Jordan River. To the left are a lot of the lands for the, that the tri- tribes of Israel have inherited. You have West Manasseh, Issachar, Zebulun, Ephraim, Dan, Benjamin. It's great. Uh, and to the right are these tribes that this passage is talking about. The Gadites, the Reubenites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, which is way up there in the north, up there. Manasseh, Gad, and Reuben. So they are separated by the river, which is, can be very big at certain times of the year. They are separated off. And as Joshua commissions them, saying, go and thrive in the land that we've given you, there's a surprising development. One, you realize that they actually feel kind of separated from the people of God because of that separation, that line. So what they do before they cross the river which no one saw this coming, is they build, as this chapter will tell us, an imposing altar. An imposing altar. And it's surprising because, I'll I'll, I'll explain why in just a second, but let me just read 22 verse 10 where it says, When they came to Giloth near the Jordan in the land of Canaan, the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe Manasseh built an imposing altar before them. Now, Now, what makes it imposing probably is that is probably bigger than the actual altar in the tabernacle. Israel was not this type of people that had lots of altars. They had one altar. So the whole idea is that you had one altar, one faith, one people, one anchor center point for worship. The fact that they would build another altar is dangerous. It's, it's, it's concerning. And you might wonder why the fuss, if you read in, and I'm going to read from Deuteronomy 12 for you to just to help you get a sense of why this is. Because these are people shaped by promises and laws well before their time. And they know this. They've spent a lot of time rehearsing. So Deuteronomy 12.5 says this, You are to seek the place the Lord your God will choose among all your tribes to put his name there for his dwelling. To that place you must go. They must seek one singular, singular place. And then a few verses later in that chapter, it says this, Be careful not to sacrifice your burnt offerings anywhere you please. Offer them only at the place the Lord will choose in one of your tribes, and there observe everything I command you. Sounds pretty clear. You're not supposed to just be creating a lot of altars every other place. Why? Because if there's an altar there, people will worship at it. You have different altars in different places, and they're trying to be a people focused and anchored and surrounded by what God's called them to. And then they're surrounded by all these cultures, all these nations, all these different people who worship different gods. And the concern is that they would worship these other gods and not Yahweh, Israel's God. 
It's intended to preserve and protect Israel from worship. And then there's this tragedy of misunderstanding that happens because we don't quite know yet why they built this altar. And so all the people, all the other tribes, if you can imagine the whole left side of that map I showed you, they, they get ready to go to war. And part of that is because they have all these stories in their mind, whether you go to Numbers or you go back to earlier in Joshua with Achan's family, where one thing happens in a family or community and it affects everyone. We're going to do this all over again, that we're going to lose out, on, get, lose out and experience this judgment and pain. And so they get ready to go to war, and then they stop at a place called Shiloh, which I don't have a map for you there. But they stop at Shiloh, and before they break out into full war, they send an investigative unit to figure it out. A priest goes with them and representatives from all the tribes. And when it's so good, I, I, you start to see that they're ready to go to war and bad things might are about to happen. <laughs> and then they have a moment where they stop to listen, to ask the right questions, to not rush to assumptions. And all of a sudden they find out that these tribes, they feel cut apart. They feel separate from the whole. And they're actually starting to think about what's to come ahead of them. They're thinking not just about how they're going to do worship as a community. They're thinking about what is worship like for their children and their children's children. And they're concerned that their children are going to forget. And so they build the altar on the opposite side of the Jordan, by the way. Not the right side, the east side. They put it on the opposite side. So when their children look over, they can be reminded of that witness. That God has actually moved in their community, and even though they're on the other side of the river, that they are a part of this whole covenant community that God has called to be a part. So it, they're reaching for a reminder. The sacrifices, it wasn't intended to be a place of worship where they were going to, you know, like what Deuteronomy talks about. It wasn't intended to be a place for sacrifice. It was a place of witness. And what you'll read in the end of this chapter in 31, verse 31, 22, 31 Phinehas, son of Eleazar, the priest, said to Reuben, Gad, and Manasseh, Today we know that the Lord is with us, because you have not been unfaithful to the Lord in this matter. Now you have rescued the Israelites from the Lord's hand. So they see that this altar that was kind of planned abruptly, they didn't really talk to a lot of people about making it, but they, it was planned abruptly. It's a constant witness to these people on the other side of the river, that they belong to this land as part of this people. The last verse is what it tells us what they call this altar. They call this altar this. The Reubenites, the Gadites gave the altar this name, verse 34, a witness between us that the Lord is God. A witness between us. That really resonated with me in some way. This idea of having witnesses between us in our families and in our church that remind us of who we are and what we're called to do. And I, that, don't miss the last tagline there where it says that the Lord is God because that is the essential statement of faith. You can look at all these different faith statements. The first sort of confession of faith in the early church was Jesus is Lord. In the Old Testament, it might be something like Yahweh is God. He is the exclusive God. That this is a statement of faith connected with this witness. And, and it made me think of how, what are things in our families in life that actually draw us together and remind us? And maybe you have things in your family or that you've experienced in life. I always think about whenever I sit down in a meal with other believers of what prayer does in that moment. Just the fact that even if it's, even if it's a chaotic or fun time or everyone's kind of all over the place, that prayer rallies people together to a point. And it doesn't have to be this incredible, like, life-changing prayer. 
but the very fact that prayer would be part of any relationship shapes the conversation. Just like it shapes the conversation as Christy and I try to teach our kids to pray. <laughs> it shapes how we, we talk about being thankful and grateful. And Christy and I, we think about how we want to shape our home or how we want our kids to think of and learn about Jesus. And we want our kids to know what it's like to talk to the Lord. We also want our kids to know what it's like to, to, to have the word as part of life, that they see us reading the word. And they, they actually are interested in learning the stories of scripture because that's what leads them to know who God is. So those are some of the things I was thinking about. That's the first altar, this altar of witness, this witness between us. The second witness is, and you can probably heard it in the reading, is it's a witness against us, which is probably meant to be in a little more of a positive sense than it sounds, a witness against us. And it is this covenant renewal that happens at the end of Joshua here. And it's a longer section, and I'm not going to read all of it, but I just want us to at least appreciate where this is happening. I have another map for you. So this is our map, again, of where we are, map of, there it is, map right here. And we are, he calls everyone together. He assembles all the tribes in Israel. He summons them to Shechem. Yeah, there we go. We got Shechem right there. Everybody see Shechem? Uh, Circled right there. Left side of the river, which is important probably. this is a historically significant place. You know, a lot of times when we read scripture, places get mentioned and we don't know the full histories or everything. Let me tell you a few things that happened in Shechem. Well, this is where Abram, Abram, before he was Abraham, first received a call from God in Genesis 12. And that's actually where he built an altar all the way back in Genesis 12. He built an altar there, knowing and receiving that promise that God would give him this land. This was a long time ago. It's also where Jacob, his grandson, built an altar when he was renamed. That Jacob was renamed with the name Israel, and he was renamed actually in the same place. That's where Jacob built an altar. It's also the same place Moses before Joshua was told the people that this is where they needed to go for a covenant renewal act, which they already did in the book of Joshua, which we didn't actually talk about, but it was back in chapter 8. Chapter 8, they have a covenant renewal point before they continue on in the conquest of the land. And they have a covenant renewal where they're supposed to look at the different mountains in between Shechem, Mount Ebal and Gerizim, and say, this is the mountain of blessing, and this is the mountain of curses. They're almost like rehearsing the covenant, that if we continue in the promises of God, God will bless us, and if we step away, he'll remove his blessing. And there's this act that they do. You can look at the chapter 8 for that if you want to look at that a little more. It's also, like we talked about last week, it's a city of refuge. Shechem is a city of refuge set apart for people seeking refuge when they might have accidentally killed someone. Then they need a safe place to hear their case. It's also this place where these people find themselves. And all the people have been on this journey and they end this journey together. Joshua wants to call them to unity. He wants to call them to be together in this moment to remember what God just did as critical for how you're going to understand what he does from here. Because if you forget what he's done, you might step out in faith. A lot of this chapter is Joshua telling Israel's history back to them over and over again. This is what God did. Do you remember that? Do you remember that? And do you ever do that? I found myself doing that with, with some staff members here at churches. We were reflecting on this past year. Do you remember when God did this? 
Do you remember that? That was amazing that he did this and provided. Or, or thinking back to what has brought us joy this past year. And I think it's an act of gratitude we all have to do at some point or another because it's very easy to look at the past year and say, oh, this has been terrible. And it's like, what, about, what does it look like to be grateful? To remember the faithfulness of God. Uh, just, and what shifts is from the storytelling that Joshua does is then, and repetition of the history, it shifts to this call and response thing. It's almost like what you might experience in worship at a church where Joshua is giving commands and caution over and over again, and he's asking the people to respond. Let me give you an example by looking at a few verses, 24, 14 in the chapter. He says, Now fear the Lord and serve him with all faithfulness. Throw away the gods your ancestors worship beyond the Euphrates River and in Egypt, so way back then, and serve the Lord. But if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve. And so he's, he's starting to say, it, doesn't, it matters what's happened before, but just because that happened, don't, don't just live life the way you want to now. Actually live because of the reality of what you've received. Maybe you want to go worship other gods. Well, you might as well do it now. Instead, right now, how about you choose what you want to do? And I, I was really moved in the, when the worship team was leading us because they had that language in there. What does it look like to choose the Lord today? To give your yes to the Lord today. This is the people's response in verse 21 of this chapter. It says, but the people said to Joshua, no, we will serve the Lord. Then the Lord said, you are witnesses against yourselves that you have chosen to serve the Lord. Yes, we are witnesses, they replied. And even in that, that, those verses there, this word serve is over there, abad. It's, it's in there six or seven times, all woven in what Joshua is saying and what the people are saying. And it's all implying the idea that if you don't choose God, you're going to choose someone. Maybe you've, had, you've reflected on worship this way before or not. If you don't choose this life of faith following Jesus, well, you're going to choose something else. It's an exclusive call. And there are many things that would love our attention, that would love our energy, that would love our presence, that would just love us to be part of them. But they in no way are part of this holistic healing work of the gospel that God's inviting us into. And part of the discernment of the Spirit is to know, no, this, this is not leading me towards what God has for me in his kingdom. We have to choose the Lord. And it's an exclusive call. What happens at the end of this and this altar is part of this tabernacle gathering, is that they're renewing the covenant together. Just like what I said was, what was all the history of everything that's happened in Shechem. If you, if you go home and remember some of those things from Shechem, it's kind of neat just when you read it and see it pop up in different times in Scripture. And what I want us to take away from it is not that the covenant is this very strict treaty that binds people, God's people together. No, covenant is not based on rewards and services. It's based on relationship. That when we hear, use the word covenant, I would love for you in your mind to have a relationship right there. That this is how God is asking for us to be in relationship with him. In ver- at the end of this chapter, it says, On the day that Joshua made a covenant for the people... And there at Shechem, he reaffirmed for them decrees and laws. Joshua recorded these things in the book of the law of God, which is one of the reasons why we would be reading it. Then he took a large stone and set it up there under the oak near the holy place of the Lord. See, he said to all the people, the stone will be a witness against us. And I think he means it 
in a challenging, challenging way, but not in a way that should be discouraging for you and I. The stone is put there to remind us, just like stones have been part of the whole journey in the book of Joshua. It's this massive, unignorable stone that has actually witnessed everything that you've said that you will do. The people have said they will follow the Lord. And, you know, spoiler alert, this is almost, this book almost is like the end of a very intense, like, TV show season trailer. It's almost at the very end of it where you're like, wow, that was some resolution, but that was very intense. I'm surprised. How are they going to keep that going in the next season? And then you start the next season, and you realize this is really dark. It gets even darker because the next book is Judges, which has got so many different difficult things in it. But there's a sense of resolution and somberness, and it also speaks to us that what you choose matters. These people make all their choices and what they say will be held against them. Just like what we do and what we say is held against us. And that's why I wanted to, I was saying what I was before that, you know, whether you've been a part of this church a long time, whether you've been a follower of Jesus for a long time, or maybe you're new in this journey and experience, that living this life is about choosing God and his grace. Not because we feel like we have to or we were told to growing up, but because what God has for us is even better, that in his presence is fullness of joy. Choose to follow God because his grace is called out to you, that you've actually heard God call to you to a different, possi- different set of possibilities than what the world has for you because of the promises bound in his kingdom and the promises bound and fulfilled in Jesus. Choose to seek God because he's worthy in your life, not because it was a good idea presented to you, Because he has so much to offer you, but we must take and receive these things as good completely. This book and Joshua demonstrates not only that God's grace is calling us from our broken pasts, but also the faithfulness of God and taking care of us in the future. So we have the altar that's a witness between us, the altar that is a witness against us, our words, our actions. But this all prepares us for an altar of witness that is for us, and that is Jesus. When Jesus goes to the cross, and I know the video doesn't always see the cross over here when I point to it, but when Jesus goes to the cross, it is the altar, the ultimate altar for us. It's an altar for all nations and all people to remove any boundaries between Israel and the other cultures and people around. And it speaks a better word, that there is no condemnation for those who are in Jesus Christ. It's a, all these altars that happen in Joshua are all anticipating the one true altar that Christ would lay down his life for us. They're all replicas in shape. Even the, even the altar in the tabernacle was meant to be a replica of the altar in the heavens. And then the altar on the other side of the river is meant to be a replica of the tabernacle. They're all trying to replicate and represent something that actually comes in human form. And it's Christ who comes before us, for us and shows us the true heart of God. And it's as we see what Jesus does in the scriptures, as we behold what he does in the cross, that we also hear that you are the Lord's, that you are bought, that you are rescued, and that you are his. And in truth, as some of the other verses in this chapter will tell us, we can't serve a holy God apart from Jesus. Joshua flat out tells the people that. You can't serve me because I'm holy. That God expects this, this level of intimacy and connection that people on their own don't follow through. But Jesus fulfills that. 
Jesus fulfills that. And because oftentimes we find ourselves with divided hearts, divided agendas, divided goals. And then our worship shows it. Our worship of what we do in the world. It is divided and all over the place. Jesus comes and fulfills that. And the cross is a witness for us that the final result of our life at the end of time is not based on what you can accomplish or do, but it's based on the actions of Christ, his work, his love. And so I'd like just to take a moment to think, and there's a quote I'd like to read as I want to ask a few questions. What I would like to think of these is take-home questions. Questions I won't be able to answer well for you here, but questions I would love for you to take home and to reflect throughout the week. And it's in response to this quote that says, change is moving in the right direction. It's not about speed, distance, or perfection, but the direction. That's David Paulson, who's a Christian counselor. And so much of a book like Joshua and what I just said about beholding Christ as the ultimate altar for us is about knowing the direction. But it is about knowing where we're called to and how we're going to get there. And all these stones, whether you go back to the stones of remembrance in the Jordan River early on, or the different stones set apart, they're all powerful reminders of God's blessing, but also warning that if we don't receive God's promises as what they are, what we actually need for the journey ahead, we're going to be lacking of what we need. The first question I want to ask you is this. What or who holds the altar places in your life? The altar places are the places you gather and you spend the most time. You invest the most energy, the most thought. They own part of ourselves, really. What are the things in your life that hold those places for you? And maybe faith in Jesus and your walk with Jesus is part of that. But is it the only one? Is it the main one? How do you approach these altars in your life? I think of how much time technology can take over in my life. I can think of just being overly anxious about money and provision. I can think about relationships and status. And I don't know what it is for you, but those things can take place and be these altars for us and take us out of the promises God has for us. It's like what Romans 12 says, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is a true and proper This is true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing will. The danger, there's a danger in having a divided life. When we behold the cross as Christ's ultimate altar for us, do we see it as our call for ourselves? I'm going to invite the band to come up and lead us in a response of worship as I ask this next question, which is where can... God's grace go even deeper in your life. Because one of the things this speaks to is not to people who feel like it has it all figured out. It speaks to the proud. As someone who's lived life in the church following Jesus for most of my life, I know how easy it is to feel like you have this all figured out, that you feel prideful. And that is not this open posture (laughs) that God's asking us into. Really, God, I mean, Christ, Paul in 1 Corinthians warns us against pride. It warns us against pride. And so if, any, if the Spirit is asking you, I want you to think about what are some areas you might be overly confident in that you need to let go of. Because that's not how God works. In 1 Corinthians 26, it says this. Brothers and sisters, think of what, what you were when you were called. 
Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many of you were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. Um, God chose the lowly things of the world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus who has become for us wisdom from God. That is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Redemption.